0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham.
1: And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science.
0: And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security.
1: And now, let's unlock the pod. Hey, Nick, welcome to today's episode. How are you doing today?
0: Hello, Natalia. I'm doing very well, thank you. And very excited for today's episode, episode 21. Joining us today on the podcast is Valicia Macklin, General Manager of Engineering for Customer Security and Trust, someone who we have had on the shortlist to invite onto the podcast since we began. And this is such a great time to have Valicia come and share her story and her perspective, being the final episode for the month of March where we are celebrating Women's History Month. So many incredible topics covered here in this conversation, Natalia. What were some of your highlights?
1: I really love how she brought in her mechanical engineering background to cybersecurity. So she graduated with a mechanical engineering degree, and the way she described it was that she was a systems thinker. And as a mechanical engineer, she thought about how systems could fail. And now she applies that to cybersecurity and the the lens of risk, how— the systems that she tries to secure might fail in order to protect against attacks. And I just thought that that was such a cool application of a non-security domain to security. What about yourself?
0: Yeah, well, I think, first of all, Valicia has an incredibly relatable story up front for how she sort of found herself pointed in the direction of computer science and, and security. I think people will relate to that. But then also, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the importance of the human element in cybersecurity and the work that Valicia does in her engineering organization around championing and prioritizing um, diversity and inclusion and what that means in the context of cybersecurity it's a very important topic. It's very timely. I think it's one that people have got a lot of questions about. Like, you know, we're hearing about d D&I and diversity and inclusion. What is it? What does it mean? What does it mean for cybersecurity? I think Valicia covers all of that in, the, in this conversation and her perspective is incredible. Oh, and the great news is, as you'll hear at the end, Valicia is hiring. So if you, like me, are inspired by this conversation, great news. There's actually a bunch of roles that you can go and apply for to go and work for Valicia on her team. On with the pod. On with the pod. Valicia Macklin, welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Nick and Natalia.
0: We'd love to start to learn a bit about you. You're uh, the General Manager of uh, Engineering for Customer Security and Trust. Tell us what that means. Tell us about your team. Tell us about the amazing work that you and, and the people on your team do.
2: Absolutely. I am so proud of our Customer Security and Trust Engineering team, Our role is to deliver solutions and capabilities that empower us to ensure our customers' trust in our services and our products. So I have teams that build engineering capabilities for the Digital Crimes Unit. We build compliance capabilities for our law enforcement and national security team. And our team makes sure that law enforcement agencies are in compliant with their local regulatory responsibilities and that we can meet our obligations to protect our customers. I have another team that provides uh, national security solutions we do our global transparency centers um, where we can ensure that our products are what we say they are. I have two full compliance engineering teams that build capabilities to automate our compliance at scale for our Microsoft security development lifecycle, as well as uh, things like uh, advancing machine learning, advancing open source security, just a wealth of enterprise-wide, as well as stakeholder community solutions. Um, I could go on and on. We do digital safety engineering. So uh, a very broad set of capabilities all around the focus and the mission of making sure that the products and services that we deliver to our customers are what we intend and say that they are.
0: Got it. And Valicia, so how does your engineering org relate to some of the other larger engineering orgs at Microsoft that are building uh, security compliance solutions?
2: So our other Microsoft organizations that do that are often building those capabilities within a particular product engineering group. Um, Customer security and trust is actually in our corporate external and legal affairs function. So we don't have that sales obligation. Our full-time responsibility is looking across the enterprise and delivering capabilities that meet those broad regulatory responsibilities. So again, if we think about our digital crimes unit that partners with law enforcement to protect our customers around the world We're building capabilities for them or digital safety, right? If you think about the Christchurch call and what happened in New Zealand, we're building capabilities to help with that in partnership with what those product groups may need to do. So, um, so we're looking
0: at compliance more broadly. Got it. And does your team interface with some of the engineering groups that are developing products for customers? absolutely so when you think about
2: the work that we do in the open source security space our team is kind of that pointy end of the spear to do um, that assessment and identify here are where some areas are that we need to put some focus and then the engineering the product engineering groups will then and build go and build that resiliency into the systems
0: two follow-up questions one is on the podcast, we've actually spoken to some some folks that are on your team. Uh, Andrew Marshall was on an earlier episode. We mm-hmm. spoke with Scott Christensen. We've had other members of the Digital Crimes Unit come on and talk about that work. Just a sort of a signpost for listeners of the podcast, how does Andrew's work uh, fit in your organization? How does Scott's work fit into your organization?
2: So um, both Andrew and Scott are in a team um, within my org uh, that's called Security Engineering and Assurance. And they're actually able to really focus their time on that thought leadership portion. So again, if you think about the engineering groups and the product teams, they have to you know, really focus on the resiliency of the products. What our team is doing is looking ahead to think about what new threat vectors are. So if you think about the work that Andrew does, He partnered with Harvard and and other parts of of Microsoft to really advance thought leadership and how we can interpret adversarial machine learning. Um, When you think about some of our other work in our open source security space, it is let's look forward at where we need to be on the edge from a thought leadership perspective. Let's prototype some capabilities operationalize it so that it's tangible for the engineering groups to then apply and then our my guys will go and partner with the engineering groups and got and gals right (laughs) so so um we will then go and partner with the product groups to operationalize those solutions either as a part of our security um, development lifecycle or just a
0: general security and assurance practices Got it. And I think, I, I can't remember if it was Scott or Andrew mentioned this, but on a previous podcast, there was a reference to, I think it's an internal tool, something called Liquid. Mm-hmm. Liquid, that, yes. Can you talk uh, about yes. that? Because it was, it was hinted at in the previous episode.
2: Yes. Yes. So Liquid um, actually have a full team <laughs> that builds and sustains Liquid. It is a um, custom-built uh, capability that allows us to basically have sensors within our build systems. Um, and so when you think about our security development lifecycle and you think about our operational security requirements, it's given us a way to automate not only those requirements, but, you know, ISO and NIST standards. Um, and then that way, with those hooks into the build systems, we can get a enterprise wide look at the compliance state of our builds as they're going on. So a developer in a product group doesn't have to think about am I compliant with SDL. Um, What they can do is, you know, once the the data is looked at, we can do predictive and reactive analysis and say, hey, you know, there's critical bugs in this part of the application that haven't been burned down within 30 days. And so rather than a lot of manual antestation, we can do um, compliance at scale. And I I just mentioned manual antestation of security requirements. Um, One of my other teams um, has recently just launched a capability that we're super excited about that leverages what we call CodeQL, or used to be called SIML that again is automating kind of on the other edge, right? So with Liquid, it's once we pulled in the build data, um, we're working with the engineering groups in Microsoft now to um, do the other edge where they don't have to self-attest that they're compliant with security requirements. Um, we're, we're moving very fast to um, automate that on behalf of the developer, So that, again, we're doing security by design.
0: So how has your team had to evolve and change uh, the way that they they work during this sort of the COVID era, during the sort of work from home? Was your team already set up to be able to securely work remotely or were there sort of other changes you had to make on the fly?
2: So, you know as we've been in COVID, my team just responded phenomenally. We were actually well positioned to work from home and continue to function from home. You know, there were some instances where from an ergonomic perspective, let's get some resources out to folks because maybe their home wasn't designed for them to be there, you know, five days a week. So the the technical component of doing the work wasn't the challenge. What I as a leader continuously emphasized, and it's what what my team needed, frankly, is making sure we stayed with the connectedness, right? How do we continue to make sure that folks are connected, that they don't feel isolated, that, you know, they feel visibility from their, from their managers? And consider I had, I had 10 new people start in the past year entirely through COVID, including three new college hires. So can you imagine starting your professional wow. career onboarding? and never being in the office with your peers or colleagues and and you know and the connective tissue you would typically organically have to build relationships. And so through COVID, during COVID, we've had to be very creative about building and sustaining the connective tissue of the team, making sure that we were understanding folks' um, personal needs and creating a safe space for that. You know, I was a big advocate way back in August where I said, hey folks you know because sc- I knew the school year was starting and even though we hadn't made any statements yet about when return to work would you know would advance to I made a statement to my team of hey it's August we've been at this for a few months it's not going anywhere anytime soon so I don't want us carrying ourselves as if we're coming back to the office tomorrow let's you know give folks some space, to reconcile what this is going to look like if they have childcare, if they have elder care, if they're just frozen from being in- indoors this amount of time. Let's make sure that we're giving each other space for that. Also during the past year, you know, certainly we had, I would say, parallel once in a generation type events, right? So we had COVID, but we also had a Increased awareness, you know, of, of the racial inequities in our country. And for me, as a woman of color that's in cybersecurity, I've spent my entire career being a, a series of firsts, um, particularly at the executive table. And so, you know, so it was a, an opportunity we also had in the past year to advance that conversation so that we could extend one another grace. Right. So I personally was touched by COVID. I I lost five people in the past year. Um, and I was also I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and you keep showing up, right? And I was personally touched as a black woman who once again has to be concerned about, you know, I have a I have twin nephews that are 19. One's autistic and the other is not, but we won't allow him to get his driver's license yet. His my my sister's petrified because you know that's a real fear that a young man who's six one sweetest thing you would ever see soft spoken um, but he's six one he has you know dreadlocks in his hair or locks he would hate to hear me say they were dreads he has locks in his hair um, and he dresses like a nineteen year old boy right but on spot that's not what the world sees and so um that's what we're all and then you think about what's happening now with our asian american community that's also bundled with folks who are human having to be isolated and indoors which that's not how humanity was designed and so we have to remember that, that shows up. And, and when you're in, in the work of security, where you're always thinking about threat actors. And I often say that some of our best security folks have kind of some orthogonal thinking that's necessary to kind of deal with the different nuances when you when you are thinking about how do you build resiliency against ever-evolving threats notwithstanding the really massive one that, you know, was the next one we we dealt with at the end of the last calendar year. Those are all things that work in the circle. And I always say that people build systems, they don't build themselves. And in this time more than ever, hopefully, as security professionals, we're remembering the human element. And we're remembering that the work that we do um has purpose, which is, you know, why I entered this space in, in the first place and why I've spent my career doing the things I've done is because we have a phenomenal responsibility, increasingly in a time of interconnectedness from a technology perspective to secure our way of life.
0: Wow. Um well on, on that note, you talked about sort of why you went into security. I'd love to sort of I'd love to go there. Would you mind talking us through how you sort of first learned of security and, and why you're excited about it and how you made the decision to, to go into that space?
2: Absolutely. So mine actually started quite a while ago. I was majoring in mechanical engineering and material science at, at Duke University. I was in my junior year and um, I should preface it with I did my four-year engineering degree in three and a half years. So my, my junior year was pretty intense. I worked, was working on a project for mechanical engineering that I'd spent about seven hours on and I lost my data. Oh, I was building a model. Literally, I sat at the computer because, you know, you know, back then, you know, there weren't a whole lot of computer resources. So you try to get there early and and, and snag the computer so that you could use it as long as you needed to. I went in actually on a holiday because I knew everybody would be gone. So if I, I could have the full day and not have to give up the computer to someone. So I'd spent seven hours building this model and it disappeared. And it was the you know little five in a thin floppy. I'm pulling it out. I'm looking at the box. I'm <laughs> it's gone. The, the, the model has gone. I was going to have to start all over. I started my homework over again, but then I said, I will never lose a homework assignment like that again. So I went and found a professor in the computer science school to agree to do an independent study with me because as a junior, no one was going to allow me to change my major for mechanical engineering that far in at Duke University, not not my parents anyway. So I um, did an independent study in computer science and taught myself programming. So I taught myself programming, taught myself how to understand the hardware with with my professor's help, of course. But it was the work I did with that independent study that actually led to the job I was hired into when I graduated. So I've never worked as a mechanical engineer. I immediately went into doing national security work um, where I worked for companies that were in the defense industrial base. For the United States. And so I, I started and spent my entire career building large scale information systems for you know the DOD for the intelligence community and that vectored into a main focus on large um, security systems that I was developing or managing or leading solutions through. So it started with lost data, right? You know, which is so apropos for where we are today. But it started with you know losing data on a software in a software application, and me just being so frustrated and said, "That's never going to happen to me again." <laughs> that um, that led me to pursue work in this space.
1: How did your degree in mechanical engineering inform your understanding of infosec? As you were studying infosec, did you feel like you were bringing in some of that knowledge?
2: One of the beautiful things, and it was interesting, is I would take on new roles. I'll, I'll never forget, um, I, I got wonderful opportunities as as my career was launched. And folks would ask me, well, why are you going to go do that job? You've never done that before. You know, do you know it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what that taught me is, you know, you don't have to know everything about it going in. You just need to know how to address the problem, right? So I consider myself a systems thinker. And that's what my mechanical engineering um, background provided was look at the whole system, right? And so how do you approach the problem? And also, because I also had a material science component, we studied failures a lot. So material failure, how that affected infrastructure, you know, when a bridge collapses or, or starts to oscillate. Um, so it was that taking a systems view and then drilling down into the details to predictively identify failures and then build resiliency to not have those things happen again is that kind of that that level of thinking that played into when I went into infosec
1: that sounds incredibly fitting so what excites you today about infosec or or how has your focus in infosec changed over time what passions have you been following so for
2: me It's the fact that it's always going to evolve, right? And so, you know, obviously the breaches make the headlines, but... I'm one we should never be surprised by breaches just like we shouldn't be surprised by car thefts or home invasions or you know think about the level of insurance and infrastructure and technology and tools and habits <laughs> that we've uh, we've developed over time for basic emergency response just for our homes or our life right so For me, it's just part of the evolution that we have, that there's always going to be something new. And there's always going to be that actor that's going to look to take a shortcut, that's going to look to take something from someone else. And so in that regard, it is staying on the offense of building resiliency to protect our way of life. And so I I am always passionate and again, it's it's likely how I, you know, spent almost, you know, over 27 years of my career is protecting our way of life, but protecting it in a way where for your everyday citizen, they don't have to go and get the degree in computer science, right? That they can have confidence in the services and the, the things that they rely on. They can have confidence that their car system is going to break, that the brakes are gonna hit you know activate when they hit it. That's the place I want to see us get to as it relates to the dependency we now have on our computer systems and, and our internet connected and devices and, and IoT and that sort of thing. So that's what makes me passionate. Today, it may look like multifactored authentication and you know, zero trust networks, but tomorrow is going to look like something completely different. And what I, where I'd love to see us get is, you know, think about your car we don't freak out about the new technologies that show up in our car, you know, because we know how we, we, we get in and we drive and, and we anxiously await some people. I, I'm kind of a control freak. I want to still drive my car. I don't want it to drive itself. But, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, with each, you know, generational evolution of the car, we didn't freak out and say, oh my gosh, it's doing this now. If we can start to get there... To where there's trust and confidence, and and that's why I love, you know, what my org is responsible for doing, is, you know, that there's trust and confidence that when Microsoft, when you have a Microsoft product or service, you you, you can trust that it's doing what you intend for it to do. And, And that's... Not just for here, but then, you know, when you're, again, whether it's the car or your refrigerator or your television, that's where I'd love to, that's where I want to see us continue to evolve, not only in the capabilities we deliver, but as a society, how we expect to interact with them.
1: Are you particularly proud of any projects that you've run or been part of in your career?
2: I am. And it's actually what led me to Microsoft. I had my greatest career success, but it, it came also at, at a time of, of of my greatest personal loss. Literally, they were concurrent on top of each other. And so I was responsible. I was the, the business executive responsible for the cybersecurity version of, of, of the JEDI program. Uh, so I was the business executive architecting our response to that work, That was with the Department of Homeland Security. I worked for a company that at the time wasn't known for cybersecurity. And so it was a monumental undertaking to get that responsibility. And the role was to take over and then modernize the cybersecurity system responsible for protecting the .gov domain. So it was tremendously rewarding, especially in the optic that we have today I received the highest award that my prior company gives to an individual. I was super proud of the team that I was able to lead and and keep together during all the nuances of stop, start, stop, start that government contracting um, does when there's protest. But during that same time, you know, because it was so it's one of those once in a career type opportunities if you've ever done national security work to actually usher and anchor in a brand new mission, is how we would label it, um, that you would be delivering for the government. But at the same time that that wonderfully challenging, both technically and from a business perspective scenario was going on, I, in successive moments, lost my last grandparent, suddenly lost my sister, 12 months later, suddenly lost my mother, Six months later, had to have major surgery, so that all came in succession. While I was doing this major once-in-a-career initiative, that was a large cybersecurity program to protect our government, and I I survived it, right? So um, the the program started and did well, but I I then kind of took a step back, right? Once I I I promised the company at the time and the government that I would would give it a year, right? I would make sure the program transitioned since we'd worked so hard to get there. And then I took a step back and said, hmm, what do I really want to do? This was a lot. (laughs) And so I did take a step back and got a call from Microsoft, actually, um, amongst some other companies. Uh, I thought I was going to take a break, but Clearly, um, others had had different ideas, and so um, <laughs> I had I had multiple opportunities presented to me. But what was so intriguing and, and what drew me to Microsoft was, first of all, the values of the company. You know, I'm a values driven person, and the values um, mean a lot. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But then also, I, I mentioned that the org I lead is in corporate external and legal affairs. It's not within the product group. It's looking at our global obligations to securing our products and services from a not just a regulatory perspective, but not limited by our our sales target. And so the ability to be strategic in that way is what was intriguing and what, what drew me. When you think about the commitments the company has made to its employees and to its vendors, During a time um, that we've been in, it says a lot about the fabric of of who we are, to take that fear of employability, insurance, and those sorts of things that are basic human needs, to recall how early on we still had our cafeteria services going so that they could then go and provide meals for for students who would typically get school meals. And at the same time it meant that those vendors that provide food services could continue to do their work. When you think about our response to the racial inequity and injustice, social justice initiative, and the commitments were not only not only made but are, are keeping it's the fabric of the company and the ability to do the work that I am passionate about that that drew me here.
0: You talked about bringing the human element to security. What does that mean to you, and how have you tried to bring that sort of culturally into your organization and, and, and beyond?
2: So, if you think about the human element of security, the operative word is human, and so as humans, we are a kaleidoscope of gender and colors and nationalities and experiences, even if you were in the same town, you have a completely different experience that you can bring to bear. So when I think about how I introduce um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the organization that I lead, it is making sure that we're more representative of who we are as humans. And sometimes walking around Redmond, you don't always get that. But it's the, you know, I I come from the East Coast. So, you know, one of the going phrases I would use a lot is, I'm not a Pacific Northwesterner. I don't have this passive aggressiveness down. I'm pretty direct. (laughs) And so that's a different approach, right, to how we do our work, how we lean in, how we ask questions. And so I am incredibly passionate about increasing the opportunities and roles for women and underrepresented minorities, underrepresented uh, minorities in cybersecurity. And so we've been very focused on, you know, not just looking at internal folks that we may have worked on with on another team, you know, for years and making sure that every opportunity in my organization is always opened up both internally and externally. They're always opened up to make sure that we're we're looking beyond our mirror image to um, hire staff. And it's powerful having people that think the same way you do because you can coalesce very quickly. But the flip side of that is sometimes you can lose some innovation because everybody's seeing the same thing you see. And, and it's so important in, in security Because we're talking about our threat actors typically have a human element is making sure that we can understand multiple voices and multiple experiences as we're designing solutions and as we're thinking about what the threats may be.
1: So for women or uh, members of minority groups, what guidance do you have for them if they're not feeling empowered right now in security, if they don't know how to network, how to find leaders like yourself who are supporting DNI?
2: One of the things I always encourage folks to do and, and I mentor a lot is just be passionate about who you are and what you contribute. But what I would say, uh, Natalia, is for them to take chances not be afraid to fail, not be afraid to approach people you don't know. Um, Something I got comfortable with very early is if I was somewhere and heard a leader speak on stage somewhere, or I was, you know, I saw someone on a panel internally or externally, I would go up to them afterwards and introduce myself and ask, You know, would you be willing to have a career discussion with me? Could I get 30 minutes on your calendar? And so that was just kind of a normal part of my rhythm, which allowed me to be very comfortable getting to meet new executive leaders and share about myself, and, and more importantly, hear about their journeys. And the more you hear about others' journey, you can help cultivate a script for your own. And so, so that's what I often encourage, is a lot of times folks are, are pr- afraid, particularly women and, and minorities, are afraid to approach, because they think, well, you know, I don't know enough, or I don't know what to ask. It can be as simple as, I heard you speak, I would love to hear more about your story. Do you have time? Do you have 20 minutes? And then let, you know, relationships start from there and let the learning start from there.
0: As a leader in the security space, as a leader at Microsoft, what are you excited about for the future? What, what's sort of coming in terms of, you know, it could be cultural change, it could be technology innovation. What, what are you sort of looking and seeing in the next three, five, 10 years? For me, it's the cultural change.
2: I'm looking forward, and you heard me kind of allude to a little bit of this, of you now have the public increasingly aware of what happens when there's data loss. I'm so excited to look forward to that moment when that narrative shifts and the public learns and knows more of security hygiene, cybersecurity hygiene, and and not, you know, both consumer and enterprise, because we take for granted that enterprises have nailed this. And, and we're in a unique footing as a company to have it more part of our DNA, but not every company does. And so that's what I'm looking forward to for the future is the culture of that young person in the midst of schooling, not having to guess about what a cybersecurity or security professional is, much like they don't guess what a lawyer or a doctor is, right? So that's what I look forward to for the future.
0: Any organizations, groups that you you know personally support or are fans of that you'd also like to plug?
2: Sure. So I actually support a, a number of organizations. I support an organization called Advancing Minorities in Engineering, which works directly with historically black colleges and universities to not only increase their learning but also create opportunities to extend the representation in security. I also am a board member of Safe Code which is also focused on advancing security, design, hygiene across enterprises, small, midsize, and large businesses. And so, so those are, are certainly a, a couple of, of organizations that, you know, I dedicate time to. I would just encourage folks, you know, we have TEALs, we have DigiGirls. Everyone has a role to play to help expand the perception of what we do in the security space. We're not monolithic. The beauty of us as a people is that we can bring our differences together to do some of the most phenomenal and innovative things. And so that would be my ask, is in whatever way fits for where someone is, that they reach out to someone and make that connection. I I very often will reach down and I'll have someone, you know, a couple levels down and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you called and asked for a one-on-one. So I don't wait for folks to ask for a one-on-one with me. I, I'll go and ping and just, you know, pick someone and say, hey, you know, I wanna, I just want to touch base with you and see how you're doing and see what you're thinking about with your career. All of us can do that with someone else and help people feel connected and seen.
1: And just to wrap here, are you hiring? Are there any resources that you want to plug or share with our audience? You might be interested in continuing down some of these Absolutely. topics. Absolutely,
2: thank you so much. Um, so I am hiring, hiring data architects because you can imagine that we we deal with high volumes of data. I'm hiring software engineers. I'm hiring a, a data scientists. So um, data, data, and more data, right? And um, <laughs> and software engineers that are inquisitive to figure out the, the right ways for us to you know make the best use of it.
1: Awesome. Well, thank, thank you for you. that. And thank you for joining us today, Felicia. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you, Nick. I've really enjoyed it. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode.
0: And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe.
1: Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.